I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Chris Dorley Brown, a documentary photographer best known for recording the streetscapes and architecture of East London. Over the past 40 years, Dorley Brown has captured this area of the city at critical points of change often revisiting sites over a span of decades to reveal the alterations brought on by time. We met via Zoom back in May of this year and talked about, among other things, his single-minded commitment to photography and his openness to this relatively novel medium. We also touched on the relationships between emotion, color, and the atmospheres of cultural memory, as well as Chris's draw to the long view of time and the alchemy that happens when revisiting and rephotographing the same people or places years apart. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. You mentioned that you, know, you didn't study photography formally. And um, it's been written that your cultural education was formed in East London, I guess, starting in the late 70s. Yeah. Could you just walk me through this process of self-education, of learning photography in these conditions in the late 70s in East London against the backdrop of um, strongly polarized political conflict and change? Yeah, I arrived in London in 1978, towards the end of 78, you know, Britain was going through a pretty, uh, you know, it was going through a certain kind of upheaval. I guess all those up <laughs> upheavals has to have to be recalibrated in the light of recent events in in terms of their, uh, you know, scale and importance. But um, you know, I was kind of seventeen, and may, maybe when you're seventeen, every, everything is is significant. You know, in, politically speaking, because you're kind of unformed in a certain way but uh, when I when I arrived in London it was shortly before um, the Labour government which had been in power on and off for most of my life um, was about to get thrown out um, and there was a, a very strong and detectable kind of force coming from the right that ended up being Margaret Thatcher that coincided with my uh, with with my arrival in London looking for a job I had no um, knowledge of the history of documentary photography whatsoever, um, but uh, the the job I was doing at a time, which was uh, I, I literally the f the first day I arrived in London, I went to a job centre and pulled a card off the board, and it was for a print finishes in Soho. Like they wanted a tea boy and a messenger, so 
I just I just um, went straight there and the guy said when can you start and I said well now and I took my coat off and I just started like literally within <laughs> 24 hours of arriving in town um, and within the next month kind of met everyone that I know now you know um, and that's when my education as a photographer started and also it coincided with um, a very yeah like you say a very polarized kind of political background um, I didn't know East London uh, but everyone who I met who was who was in who was interesting me photographically who was kind of based around the uh, camera work in Roman Road, which was kind of collective of uh, left-leaning radical photographers who were working as documentarians and um, experimenting in the medium. Um, I was I was working with them just as a as look making their portfolios and mounting their prints onto bits of cardboard for their exhibitions and laminating them and so forth so within a short space of time i i i met a lot of really interesting people like joe spence and ed barber and uh and very very quickly got uh politicized i guess um and also photographicized and uh I was there for about three or four years and then I started working with Red Saunders who was uh, by then someone who was really interested in me who was uh, an activist he founded Rock Against Racism um, and was also a very um, high profile photographer at the time was working regularly for the Sunday Times and he needed an assistant so I became his camera assistant and uh, I guess that's when uh, it's things started for me you know on a on a on a professional level um and looking back i don't think i really missed going to college um because i was in a in a you know i was getting my education from a much more hands-on and uh in, engaged kind of uh place of work so you know that was that was i was very lucky um but it was a good start you know and and that was east london i was and then i i moved to Hackney and uh, I started my practice a couple of years after that got a studio and a dark room and off I went I've always been drawn to documentary as a as a kind of mode of expression but then also journalism as well and that's another major branch of photography that you're you're decidedly not a part of yeah I, I there, there there is for me there's a very clear distinction between being a journalist and being a documentarian um and i i met quite a few um photojournalists in in my early years and i think i very quickly decided that i i what there was no way that i was cut out for that kind of uh attack um simply because i i i've recognized that there was a very kind of um uncompromising kind of uh, attitude that that they all had which I did I didn't have which was that kind of you know I'm going to put my foot in the door and I ain't leaving until I get the story kind of thing hmm. um, I think I was I, I wasn't prepared for that in any way either through my education or my background or just my my character in general that uh, I, w I wasn't going to be a journalist hmm. and I 
I, I guess around that time, I, I became more aware of that there there was a whole group of people who called themselves documentary photographers who weren't journalists, who were... Um, I, I guess they were sort of more forensic in their approach and they had more time and um, they were they were kind of in the process of gathering information. Um, so they didn't need to call themselves artists or journalists, but there was a whole kind of different and narrow strand of activity that appeared to be completely unrewarded with money. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and still is, I can vouch for. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. But I mean, at least in the eighties, there were a few commissions, very, very few commissions, which you really had to fight for. I was lucky enough to get a few of them, but um, they, they've long since disappeared. That you know, an institution would 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 set aside, you know, five or ten grand for a documentary photographer to just you know <laughs> hang around. Um, those things don't really happen anymore. So you kind of I developed the, uh, the the strategy of pretending that I'd been commissioned and uh, would, you know, sort of go through an imaginary interview process and um, award myself the job from some esteemed kind of institution that I was going to uh, do something uh, like photograph all the tower blocks in the, in the London Borough of Hackney, which I did in 1987, um, even though no one had asked me to, but... Um, I, I did notice that they were starting to knock them down and there should be a record of them before they all disappeared. And so they uh, they pulled them, you know, they after they'd blown up 20 of them, they suddenly realised that maybe it wasn't such a good idea, so they stopped. Um, but I, I but I kept on, I, I kept on with this commission relentlessly until I'd kind of per, had done it perfectly to my satisfaction and then presented it to the local council who were... Weren't interested in it at all, <laughs> but but uh, actually, time has proven me right. I guess in some ways, because now you know that 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 set of photographs that I gave them are, uh, you know, they're 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 interesting, and they 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 own me a bit of money, mm. like third thirty five years later, you know. Yeah. Still, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly prescient move to have made. I think you started documenting seriously kind of documenting East London in 1984 and the decisions you were making then as you say didn't really bear fruit or bear a kind of audience an interested audience until recently and it, yeah. to me it's just it's so impressive um, to have had the the endurance and tenacity to embark on a project like that without any kind of outside support. Well, you you call it endurance and tenacity. Uh, I think it, maybe there's some less interesting words to describe what I'm still doing. <laughs> just uh, just stupidity or just the inability to to really have trained myself to do anything else, you know. And um, but you know that that again was kind of a, a deliberate thing that i i mean you know i i i've had many jobs over the years from uh you know n nightclub bouncer through to uh local government official um huh. uh but i i was i was lousy at everything i ever try i mean i couldn't i couldn't be in a meeting i would just i didn't know what a meeting was i used to get up and walk out of them <laughs> halfway through because i i didn't know that you were supposed to stay there until the end uh 
I, I, I had no kind of knowledge of, of uh, work protocols or, or anything. Um, and I think I'm uh, another thing that I'm kind of discovering is that I probably would have been diagnosed as a dyslexic as a kid. Mm. Um, but I, you know, the, you know, <laughs> there were different times, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I went undiagnosed and just just got uh, you know just got whacked instead. Uh. Um, That's so interesting. There's a kind of almost like desperation. Yeah. In this early work, and and that photography, it sounds like, was really all you had. Yeah. Uh, in a way. Yeah, I think it was all I wanted to have. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted there to be no choices or fallbacks. I I I knew that if I, if I kept that in the back of my mind, that it, you know I might I might be able to squeeze through. You know, um, rather than saying, well, you know, I've got a degree or I've got qualifications in something else, I might kind of be tempted to fall back on it but um i was very dogged in kind of convincing myself that it was it was all or nothing um and that that has proved quite useful i guess yeah i want to try and understand what you were thinking as you were making these early photographs of east london at a time when it was changing because there are different ways i think of of understanding it one might be that it's for posterity um, and the other is maybe to to understand in a comparative way how things have changed. And you've done that in the book project called Continuum, where literally you have these kind of diptychs of images from 30 years ago and more recently in these, these really like startling juxtapositions of the same space years apart. The way I understand it, oftentimes a photographer goes out and shoots from the gut there's a kind of instinctive um, way of being (laughs) while you're on assignment or while you are out in the field or out in the world and documenting it. And then I guess traditionally that moment of reflection comes in the darkroom or on the computer screen. And I guess what's interesting about this, this kind of longitudinal project of yours, these comparisons of spaces, um, at different points in time, is that that reflection happens decades from the point of of um, documentation, and I guess I want to try and maybe like highlight this impulse through other projects of yours as well. One of them being a video work called Fifteen Seconds that you did for the Welcome Collection, mm-hmm. or that I guess was part of an exhibition at the Welcome but actually, again, was one of these self-initiated projects that happened decades before. Yeah. And in, in this case, you documented conversations with school kids in Essex, um, first in 94, and then again in 2004, and then once more in 2014, with the idea being that you continue to record these individuals as they grew and changed. And you presented yeah. them as a kind of triptych video. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand for myself this attraction that you seem to have to the longitudinal study or this kind of long view um, and the alchemy that happens when you put together images of the same person or the same place at different points of time. Yeah. 
Well, that was very much prompted by a TV program called Seven Up. Yes, which I've been watching during the lockdown, actually, re-watching it. That's one of yeah. my most favorite documentaries. Well, I happen to be the same age, so uh, <laughs> I, I was seven when Seven Up came out, um, and 14 when, you know, and so on and so forth. I was always at the I was always at the right age, so they became kind of you know they became friends. Um, so I was always really excited when the when the next installment. And just for people who are listening who aren't familiar, Seven I guess it's called the Up Series, and it's it's a um, it's a documentary project that was started in 1964. Yeah, and, and follows a group of um, children in London uh, through their lives checking in every seven years and i think they're at they're at um is it 63 now yeah um which as you say is your age yeah i'm i'm, I'm 61 actually oh, so, okay um yeah you know, i don't want to get ahead of myself <laughs> <laughs> okay so th- it was kind of inspired by that that project yeah and in a very profound way um that uh you know when uh you know i guess i was the kind of you know i was i was the tv age you know i was the tv generation where you know in, instead of making go-karts outside we were you know sitting on our asses watching tv all the time and kind of a- absorbing all this um you know this this kind of different angle on 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 culture you know so we became we became friendly with people who we didn't know mm. if, if you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you would if you're watching a soap opera you know you kind of get to know characters more than you know more than you know your people in your own family the one thing about seven up which they never referred to was how they looked mm. you know they would they would come back and visit them every uh, seven years and talk about their um, their circumstances you know what what they were doing in life and you know their relationships and their jobs and stuff but they would never refer to their appearance and uh my my kind of response to that which was the 15 seconds um project was to really just study um their appearance but while they while while you were studying their appearance they were either doing nothing or they were just talking about just you know general stuff Mm. So the content of the conversations wasn't really that important. It was just that you, it, it was just a way of kind of animating us, you know, while while the camera was switched on. Mm. And as you, as you can imagine, the first instalment I did of that in two thousand four, when uh, in nineteen ninety four, when they were ten, um, they didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, they were just young kids at primary school, and they just thought, "Who is this guy who's coming with this great big camera and pointing us at us?" So they, you know, they they pulled faces and they um, just looked or they play acted, uh, you know, some kind of strange thing mm-hmm. in their lives. Which mm. uh, I I didn't I didn't you know I I thought whatever they do when I switch the camera on for fifteen seconds that's that's who they are you know I'm not I'm not going to tell them to do this or that I'll accept whatever they do Mm. so when I met them again when they were uh, when they were 20 um, most of them had no memory of doing the first installment Um, so um, they they just came along out of sheer curiosity and at at that age they were well you know when you're 20 you're um, you know you're uh, you're at college or you're you're getting hammered or you you know 
<laughs> you're out doing stuff <laughs> so that's what they talked about um and when i put that beside their uh, their images from when they were 10 that was kind of interesting there was that was quite revealing in a sense that there was a kind of predict uh, prediction of of their characters when they were 10 uh, about what they did when they were 20 and when the last um installment when they were 30 which i think will be the last i don't intend to keep doing it um uh they were having children of their own and getting married and getting established in work and um that in some ways was the was the saddest one really and why i i i guess it signaled the end of some kind of energy which was only really evident when they were young um that they were kind of conforming or maybe they were a bit bored or resigned to a life um that they never envisaged i mean none of none of this was overt or kind of came out in the conversations but it was kind of detectable only in the juxtaposition when you when you saw them side by side in that triptych when they were 10 20 and 30 um and i decided then that i don't think i wanted to watch them die (laughs) (laughs) um or fall apart you know i i thought at least let them have that dignity and they you know it wasn't it wasn't like seven up that this was a great big event in their lives they just gave me um you know five five minutes once every 10 years and they didn't think about it they just went away and thought i was just some eccentric old guy you know um i guess the the title 15 seconds is a reference to andy warhol's 15 minutes absolutely yeah 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 and andy warhol also did the uh the the screen tests Mm. where where uh he he had people just um look into a camera Mm -hmm. for i don't know 15 minutes or whatever it was so they were like moving portraits so yeah there were two kind of warholian kind of uh references in that piece but then what's interesting is that you've described yourself as a photographer, not an artist. Right. And that you see photography more as a branch, uh, as you said here too, of sociology and anthropology, mm-hmm. as opposed to this kind of rarefied art practice. Yeah. So, and even the fact that this work was shown in an institution like The Welcome kind of speaks to that because it's a, it's a museum for um, the medical sciences and I mean, art and design come into play, but um, it's really about life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm interested in that distinction and that conscious, I guess, separation of titles in your mind and that you're kind of maybe drawn to or interested in the format as borrowed from another artist, but in your terms, you define the work as this kind of anthropological study and so why why is it important to distinguish for you or why do you not feel you can call yourself an artist well um simply because i'm not i'm not trained as an artist um i you know i didn't go to art school so i wouldn't think of myself as an artist any more than i would have being a doctor i mean i you know i i've 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 shown my work in in art galleries alongside artists but um I I think by not calling myself an artist just kind of saves me time, really, uh, <laughs> in in terms of not thinking of myself as an artist, um, and all the stuff that kind of goes with it. 
um, uh, a, a lot of which is is either um, boring or pretentious to me. So mm. I I, mm-hmm. I I just tend not to get involved in it because I don't really have any knowledge of it. Um, so mm. so there's a lot of baggage that comes with that title. Yeah, I mean, it, personally, you know, I when I've been um, or, where, or when people assumed that I've been an artist um, and uh, I, I find that I haven't been able to kind of deliver to, mm. to their satisfaction really <laughs> when, when the going gets tough because it just, you know, I, I just ain't that clever really, you know. It's ex- it's exciting this this weird kind of limbo between I guess traditional documentary photography and like more recent digitally augmented photography that that could be thought of as an art practice but in your case isn't. And so th- there's a, I guess a difficulty in like pinning down where this work actually stands which to me is so intriguing yeah I, I guess you only have to pin it down if you're in if you think that there's a legit a legitimate kind of um process to do to do with very specific forms and of course if you call yourself a documentary photographer then you are you are subjecting yourself to a uh you know a, a, a set of parameters that are acceptable because in order to call it a documentary picture, there has to be it has to be the truth in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I was only kind of suggesting, you know, politely that the truth could be an extended out from one one fraction of a second into a into maybe an hour or a half an hour, and and to have that information condensed. So this is our chance now to talk about the book. The Corners, yeah, which was published in 2018. It's an example of this um, expanding out of that decisive moment in photography, which, as you're describing, is taken from a fraction of a second and stretched out into the span of an hour in some cases. Yeah. So could you could you talk about how you decided to to work in that way? And create these composite images and lengthen the exposure time of a particular place in order to capture something new about it. Yeah, I mean, there are two things I think which are important. Uh, one is the transition from film to digital, which I made in about 2005, when digital cameras started to be quality wise kind of interesting, matching maybe the quality of a 35mm camera. Also, uh, Around that time, I was starting to do um, some research for another book called The Longest Way Round, which was um, a, a, a book about the history of my own family, um, or the photographic, let's say, history of my family, in which, in, in where I was um, revisiting places that my family had, had lived in the last 200 years as, as part of a kind of a social migration depending on which part of London they lived in, was a sort of signifier of their of their class. Um, so I started kind of studying London from that perspective. And in order to achieve that research part of the project, I was photographing locations in, in Hackney area. Um, and there was a lot of traffic on the, 
you know around these buildings that I was interested in so I was just waiting for the cars to kind of disappear from the frame before I shot the picture but it was never possible because there was always a car in a certain part of the frame so I just waited till one part of the picture was free of traffic and then I'd then I'd shoot another part until I managed to shoot a a, a series of pictures where every every part of the frame was free mm. and, and then I just joined them together mm. just to make a sort of a picture that was 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 clean and didn't have any cars in them um so when I was putting them together I noticed that it that the pictures had a kind of strange quality because each part of the picture had been shot in a different time you know like maybe the light had shifted mm -hmm. or you know more maybe there was kind of one one pedestrian walking twice in there so um and you know suddenly you had these very kind of clean and surreal images of a place that you could never actually view like that they were always full of people at that time of day mm. so um uh, i was kind of interested in in the effect that 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 was having on the overall image um and because i was just shooting a small part of the frame at each you know I, each image was just a kind of shot on a kind of zoom lens so i was ending up with a very very high quality very big file you know um and when it was all put together and straightened up it was <coughs> as if i shot it on a plate camera on a 5.4 or something like that um so so i thought that's interesting i can i can do this digitally i can make a i can i can make a, an image equivalent to a five by four image with with a handheld kind of cheap digital camera um and all i have to do is, is spend hours kind of stitching it together so i then thought well let's 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 do some more of those and see what happens so i just started doing them and then once i i saw the results i just couldn't stop mm. you know it was like a i just i literally could not stop doing it i would go out of the house every day and make another one because you can only do like one a day because it takes a long time um and then i noticed that all the locations that i was choosing were street corners mm. and i think at that time who was it Dave, you know the guy who did the wire david simon i think he'd he'd made a he'd made a another series in baltimore called the corner mm. um, which was just kind of about kind of drug dealing on one corner and life you know normal life just uh, from the perspective of this one corner mm. in baltimore you know uh and I, I i like the sound of that i like the corner i like the idea of a of an intersection being a place to study like because you never really knew what was around the corner or you never knew who was going to appear and it was um a mixture of angles of you know metaphorical angles and literal physical ones mm. uh, and I, I I thought it was a good way to look at London because I hadn't seen London like that um, because most pictures you see of contemporary London are fitting into the kind of so-called street photography kind of genre where you know which focuses on people uh, you know the eccentricities of individuals and um, you know drinkers or, or, or you know crazy people mm -hmm. or whatever or you know, or, or the kind of you know the the same the 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 set of kind of uh, traditions that 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 street photography kind of follows up, you know, which which is always exemplified by the uh, the woman on 
Fifth Avenue in a fur coat holding a chihuahua. <laughs> if you, I don't know who shot that picture, but you've seen it a million uh-huh. times. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I, I never was going to kind of go down that road, literally Fifth Avenue. Um, so uh, uh, I thought it would be more interesting to uh, take the perspective and take a step back through an imaginary wall behind you, um, rather like, um, I guess, artists like Stephen Shaw or from your hometown guy, Fred Herzog, mm-hmm. uh, um, with, you know, which I, I, I had no knowledge of Vancouver in the 60s and 70s, but um, once I saw the, uh, the colour renditions of that, that really interested me. And that, that again was, you know, a set of pictures that had been made kind of 30 or 40 years before, then suddenly emerging into a, you know, into a sort of perfect vacuum that had been waiting there. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, the, 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 the time passing had made them interesting because Vancouver doesn't look like that anymore. Mm. And the, f- the film isn't manufactured like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, when you work digitally, you can emulate these things. So if you don't want, uh cars in your picture you just wait for them to go you know um and because they never will all exit the picture at once then you have to start stitching the bits of the picture that don't have the cars in together and uh, and as soon as you get into that way of constructing a narrative um there's no there's no way back from it really um because the kind of pictures I was interested in making, in a way, I never saw as being achievable in in London, in a place like London, which was too narrow, too packed, too crowded. The light wasn't right. Um, so, I, you know, it, it 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 enabled me to make a lot of progress in terms of what I was hoping to achieve with um, documentary quite quickly. It seems like a lot of the a lot of the work you've done is it's interested in the sense of inevitability or almost like destiny or inheritance or something and how there's a kind of tragedy to that that's completely out of our control and that I imagine though in in composing these composite images there is some control you have as a photographer to actually construct the composition and to a certain extent to construct the the story around a given street corner. And it's a kind of control that maybe you don't have over the other kinds of images you've made. Yeah. Well, you're still dealing with what's there. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, you're getting actors or you're getting people to walk in. Mm. Um, I, si- I simply don't have the resources to be able <laughs> to do that, you know. <laughs> you know, I... I I don't have a team working and I I don't have someone who can rush off with a with a model release form the minute I take a picture so I I have to work with what's there which is I guess the role of a documentary photographer is that you don't introduce any unreal kind of um kind of incidents into the situation to mm-hmm. to to change the course of the picture but you're um maybe recognizing some subtleties that happen over time which wouldn't happen in the in the in the you know the happenstance of a 60th of a second mm-hmm. so it's uh it you know it's it stretches the range of the discipline into narrative construction so you can you can say you could you can make one person have a conversation with another person even though they never met but it appears that they're having a conversation or they're having a relationship um 
and I I thought that was interesting in terms of pushing that into the documentary genre. Um, not that I'm particularly concerned whether it, you know, it's accepted as documentary because maybe it's, uh, you know, the the digital photography medium is creating a whole new set of genres of its own that we just haven't identified or given names to yet. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, the the language of photography, particularly colour photography, is quite young in itself. You know, it it, I mean, my my kids are always astonished when I tell them that. Uh, uh, you know, colour documentary photography didn't really start until the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know. And you've mentioned before that, um, I mean, the photographs that most excite you are the ones from the Google Street View or the photographs in the front of uh, real estate agent offices. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I think a lot of photographers might recoil at that enthusiasm. Yeah, hopefully. But I think a lot of really good photographers would share that enthusiasm because it, it's a testament again to to just how new this all is and it's to me it's such a thrilling position to take that you can jump headfirst into this brave new world of images as opposed to um kind of cling to a very recent sense of tradition in a sense um they are the most kind of nakedly kind of honest images that you can that you can find you know it's like uh the, the the streets we're walking down the places we're driving down and like what the inside of our houses look like you know when um when you've had a bit of a clean up <laughs> um i i find myself looking at uh at, at a stage age of windows not because i want to buy a house it's just i'm i'm interested now that the sophistication of the photography has got to such a pitch where i'm thinking Jesus, I I can't do that shit, you know. Hmm. Like that's that's really good, you know. I think I noticed around the mid '80s that, um, and I was probably seeing maybe um, the work of some British photographers like uh, Paul Graham and Martin Parr, mm-hmm. who were pu- publishing colour work at that point. And I hadn't come across at that point maybe the work of Helen Levitt or Saul Leiter or Fred Herzog, who had been kind of doing it for a long time in America. Um, was that? there was a way of um that that color kind of um responded to banality in a certain way that that black and white didn't like that color photography sort of heightened and amplified banality in a way that was so powerful that it became interesting mm-hmm. um and to me that was a a, a new thing to get my head round i never I'd never assumed that photography was a tool to highlight banality in as such. It would all, it had always been a way of recording exciting things in an exciting way, you know, 
because you know you could make boring photographs and no one would take any notice of them if they weren't any good they were just banal mm-hmm. um but there was there was there was something about the way color film responded to everyday banality which uh excited me in a, in a way that I couldn't describe and I couldn't um analyze um and uh particularly with the work of people like Stephen Shaw um uh if I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Stephen Shaw yeah I was he, looking through his images before cuz I yeah. I'd heard you mention him as an influence and I I didn't come across his work until the 80s I don't think because I don't think he started publishing his work until then even though he'd been at it for a long time before mm. in fact oddly enough he he started off being a uh, a documentarian of the factory so you're back to Warhol again mm. um mm-hmm. but uh his series of uh pictures in the 1970s made in made in the midwest of um you know just kind of gas stations with lampposts in front of them uh you you know you couldn't take your eyes off of them and you kind of were asking yourself well why is this uh this 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 is kind of going beyond the bounds of you know traditional what makes a good photograph and there was something about the 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 subtleties of color rendition and the relationships of color which suddenly made you think of you know old master paintings of you know pictures of london by canaletto or turner or something that mm. um <clears throat> the palette was endless in in a sense this is reminding me of the book drivers in the 1980s which was published um i think in 2015 um by Huxley mini press and again, it's an example of these archival photographs that are now resurfacing in a contemporary context. And it, it literally is, it's a day um, in the 1980s that you spent photographing drivers in the city of London. Yeah. And this is during a Rolls-Royce liquidation or something? That's right. There was, uh, yeah, it should have been a liquidation. I think that what they were doing, it was the, um, they were, they were, it was going from being a public company into a private one. So they were selling, they were selling the shares, you know, they were, they were selling the shares of a company that everyone owned, um, and creating a, creating profit for the individuals who could afford to buy the shares. So it was very, you know, it was very Thatcherite kind of thing. I see. Um, So like a, like a quintessentially eighties moment culturally. Yeah. They had, that was creating this like literal traffic in the street which gave you the opportunity to take these um, incredible portraits of people in their cars in gridlock. Yeah, well, that day started off as being like, oh, maybe I can respond to this journalistically because there's mm. a thing going on that maybe there's a story about. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's happening in town. I'm not going to be able to get there because the traffic is gridlocked, so I'm going to walk. Mm. Um, and by the time I'd got to the place where the thing was happening, I'd shot all all the rolls of film that I had, all six rolls of film, on on the people waiting in the traffic jam. Um, and that became the story, but I didn't realise that for, for 25 years until mm. until Martin at Hoxton Mini Press said, well, where are the others? You know, because I showed him four, and he said, well, I've you know, I shot like six rolls of film, so there's... 72 pictures and he said well i want to see them and i said well they're not interesting and then he said let me be the judge of that (laughs) so uh so i scanned all of them and they were they were all interesting Uh, he was right 
as you were talking about color, I was just looking through the pictures again from that book and reminded about how um, specific the color palettes of cars are in any era. Yeah. I guess these palettes are intentional and have so much to do with our desires as a culture at any given moment. Yeah. And so there is this kind of, it is in a way a palette book of the 80s as well. Yeah, I mean, I think all my books are like that, really. Uh, certain colors um, triggering off certain emotional memories. Um, this, this is uh, this is this is where you need to get uh, some kind of um, psychoanalyst who's a specialist in color to talk to because <laughs> <laughs> that's it's the limit. It's the limit. It's reached my limit anyway. You know, but I yeah, I, well, I suspect that there's something going on that we don't re we haven't really given a name to, which is you know a, a chromatic value system um, to do with uh, with color and uh -huh. and, and triggers. Um, mm emotional triggers you know mm -hmm. which mm. Uh, which photography of course would be very good at because it preserves old colors like those colors of cars in the 80s i want to talk more now about the longest way around which is a book of both archival images and and more recently taken ones that have to do with your own family history talk me through how this project came into being my, when my mother died, she left me a big suitcase of stuff, most of which was uh, little black and white, small photographic prints that had some of which had been annotated on the back and some of which hadn't. Uh, quite a quite a few, maybe a thousand black and white negatives, kind of in the bottom of a box that were being scratched. It was kind of thrown at me, you know, like take this. You're the one who's good at that kind of stuff. And I sat on it for 10 years and then thought I'd better open this. And this coincided with me having a conversation with Tiffany Jones, who was um, started off the Overlaps Publishing, um, who approached me with an idea about doing a book. And I think I'd given her a few ideas which didn't really interest her. And then I started talking about this box of uh, prints um, that had been bequeathed to me um so uh, we started looking at those and we started kind of uh, assembling a kind of narrative um from a very complicated um wartime history that both my mum and dad had had in a way the triggers that you know that were contained within those images that set off various memories and um kind of joined the dots of some kind of very frayed kind of narrative threads that would that was very interesting um and it had a lot to do with photography it had a lot to do with how um some very uh, difficult issues were contained within family snaps um mm. and had never been discussed in any meaningful way because my parents were both of that generation they were 19, I think, when war broke out in 25, when it ended. And and their their kids, my brothers, um, had been kind of, you know, left to pick up the pieces of that in some ways, you know, emotionally. Mm. It's so enigmatic. It's just there's so many compelling juxtapositions of images. Yeah. There's a sense of a narrative, but... Um, it's also very open-ended, 
And the only text in the book is the kind of afterword that you'd written. But beyond that, um, it's purely images. And I guess mainly images, or a combination of these images that had been given to you from your mother. Um, yeah. Which are also, I guess, they included correspondences between your parents, uh, photographs of your father as a prisoner of war. Um, and I, I mean, it must have been so, it must be so strange to have been born into the immediate aftermath of the war. Well, they, they, they didn't talk about the war. You know, it was, um, it was something they wanted to, they worked very hard at forgetting. Um, so the, the atmosphere I was born into was like kind of halfway through, um, a party, you know, that lasted for sort of 40 years, you know, because mm. they, the best way of dealing with it was, was, you know, um, self-medication of substances. Mm. Um, so that became the kind of, the, the, you know, the, the default kind of state. Um, and it was only the photographs that sort of dared to yield up clues to, you know, the alternatives. So uh, on the surface, you know, it was all kind of, you know, um, fun and games. Um, mm. Which, you know, to their credit, I think they worked hard at making sure that we weren't subjected to, um, you know, an overload of their, their traumas. But, you know, it was kind of... Uh, and she, she, you know, she she could have thrown the, the 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 box of pictures on the bonfire, but I I think maybe she wanted me to uh, to know mm -hmm. um, stuff that she couldn't talk about. Um, and uh, so you know, I'm very, you know, I'm very glad she did mm -hmm. do that. But then I I think she also knew that they could be. It was kind of ambiguous how how this material could be, you know, uh, translated and unearthed. That was, you know, it, it could go, <laughs> it could go one of many different ways, you know. And I, mm -hmm. I suspect she probably knew that, um, mm. and, and I think she probably suspected that I would be interested enough to have a have a have a go at at at, at uncovering them, you know. Uh, so. Yeah, I, huh. I, I understand what you mean. It is, it is like a, it's an abstract kind of flow of historical material in a sense, but that that is really the most accurate way you can kind of assemble it to uh, to make any kind of narrative, recognizable kind of narrative shape to it. Uh, mm -hmm. That it it that it needed to be. Um, very very open-ended and and very unspecific in order for it to be um legible if you know what i mean mm. it's making me realize how lonely we are in the present <laughs> and that glad to be of service <laughs> <laughs> these people and these events in the past are impossible to to access but we can commune with them probably most intimately through images. And then similarly, in your work, you're always imagining people in the future in a way that you assemble an archive of the present that anticipates them. What kinds of places are you documenting now that you imagine will have some kind of 
import or value to a future audience? And what is that archive that you're building now? Well, I, I, I suspect, and it's only a suspicion, that uh, maybe the archive will end up being a document of the kind of the last days of the what I'd call the you know the civil contract you know between you know state and and people Mm. I get worried that the um the post-war optimism which is kind of I don't know remains to me to be sort of (laughs) exemplified by the architecture you know if nothing else and I'm talking about um, public buildings in public spaces that are that are that are built for n- no other reason than to help us, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe a library or a block of flats, or a, it won't, they, they weren't put there for any kind of particular profit or gain. Um, I'm maybe I, I'm a bit I'm a bit concerned that 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 kind of that's the contract I'm talking about that I may be witnessing the end of. Or certainly the, a very radical, different approach to it. That there's a, yeah, there, there, there's been a breach somewhere along the line. That I spend my days desperately looking for the remnants of it still in existence, and it might not be any more complicated than that. Mm. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, and Max Roach. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Chris Dorley Brown and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and a special thanks as well to all the supporters on Patreon. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.